Hello, my lovely listeners. I am work psychologist Claudia Mitura, and I'm on a journey to test drive and explore some of the best happiness hacks from leading experts around the globe and share with you what have I learned. So in this episode, we are discussing a grand topic of society and happiness. As humans, we have a very strong need to belong because ultimately our connections we have with each other are a center of our happiness. There is a multitude of studies that confirm that those of us who have strong and broad social connections are happier, healthier and live longer. And on the flip side, the same is true, that the feeling of social isolation is associated with higher depression and higher mortality rate. However, Our strong need to belong, unfortunately, can lead us to surrounding ourselves with people who are exactly like us. And that means we ended up in belonging bubble. We just hang out with like-minded people, follow their trends and their behaviors for the sake of belonging rather than necessary because we truly want to or because they contribute directly to our happiness. And the belonging bubble prevents us from having much more diverse and broader experiences and the views and outlooks of the society around us. In this episode, I speak to John Yates, an ex-government advisor and a charity founder who wrote the book Fractured, why our societies are coming apart and how to put them back together again. In this episode with John, we're discussing a deceptively simple idea that actually the more time we spend with people that are different to us, doing things together, the more understanding, tolerant, and even friendly we become. And ultimately, we enrich our happiness and build much more tolerant, kinder society. Welcome to Society and Happiness. I hope you will enjoy this episode. And remember, for any additional happiness resources and hacks, please visit www.andhappiness.co.uk. Hi, John. I am so excited to be welcoming you to End Happiness. Hi, Claudia. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Today episode, society and happiness. I mean, what a topic we've chosen. It feels like a very grand topic, really. Yeah, I feel I've been set up. I hope I can, you know, live up to the, the grand title. I think we should just straight away go into a very grand question. And for me, really, is from your experience, from your research, from your book, really, why does the kind of overall happiness of society really impact our own individual well-being? Why we should be even concerned by the overall happiness in our society? I think there's at least three reasons to really think about this quite seriously. So so one is that happiness is catching. Right? There's a marvellous study that was done up in Framingham, which is just a place near Boston, where they tracked people's well-being and their health for years and years and years. And they found that all sorts of things that you wouldn't think were in quote infectious are basically infectious so obesity you're more likely to be obese if your friend or your friend of a friend is obese you're more likely to take up smoking if your friend or friend of a friend takes up smoking we pick up things from norms if everyone around us is blue and down and unsurprisingly we feel pretty more likely to feel blue and down so one is 
you know, we catch these things of each other. The second is um, our society really relies on hope, like when, whatever we're doing. So whether we are voting about the future or whether we're just using cash to pay for something, we're basically all assuming that this will still be worth something in the future. And so if you lose hope as a society, you know, bad stuff starts happening. I, th- I think the one that, that I really care about is the us and them. That if you live in a society where some people are having a great time and some people are having a pretty terrible time, you're pretty closely into a sense of us versus them. And that does all sorts of bad stuff, not just to society, but to all of us. Very interesting. So I like the idea of the happiness catching, you know, in the most positive, positive way here. But really interesting. How do we actually develop that mindset as versus them. So where does it come from? There's a a guy in the 1960s who got absolutely obsessed by this, a guy called Francis Evans, and he travelled around the United States following door-to-door salespeople. My first ever job was doing door-to-door sales. (laughs) Tough, tough work. And he followed 150 door-to-door salespeople. And what what he was watching was whether they made a sale or not. And what he discovered is those salespeople were more likely to make a sale if the person buying voted the same way that they did. They were selling life insurance. It has nothing to do with how you vote, right? The second thing you found is they were more likely to make a sale if the person buying was the, the same level of income as they were. The, the third thing he found was they were more likely to make a sale if the person buying was the same height as they were. Again, it should make no difference to whether you need life insurance or not. But what he discovered was we have all of us just this slight bias towards people who remind us of ourselves. I call this people like me syndrome. And academics have discovered that there's 39,000 published papers that reference this people like me syndrome. And it's a small bias. But if we're not a bit aware of it, or a bit careful of it, what happens is we end up surrounded by people who are just a bit like us. And then we kind of stuck in a social bubble that is always confirming our views, our habits, our lifestyle, rather than potentially challenging us and allowing that learning and exploring happiness. That's the danger that half of those of us who've been to university have nearly all our friends are people who've been to university. We know that the majority of pensioners in the West have almost no friends under the age of 40. We know that about a quarter of people who voted to leave the EU and a quarter of people who voted to remain in the EU have no friends that voted the other way. We know that half of us have no friends from a different ethnic group. And we know that actually class is probably the biggest divide of all. So, you know, a barrister operating in London would have to invite 100 people around to their house to have a shot of inviting a single person they knew who was unemployed. We just end up in these little bubbles. In some ways, it's fine. You know, I like the West Wing. It's quite nice if I'm talking to people who like the West Wing once in a while. Not everyone should just suffer me talking about a political show about America. But in some ways, it's actually quite problematic. I say it's bad for our heart, our head and our hands, right? Let's go through them. It's bad for our heart, let's start off with. So, if you live in a society where people are, don't really tend to spend time with people who are different from themselves, what happens is we get quite anxious about people who are quite different from ourselves. So we think, start to think they're up to something. We start to be afraid of them. And there's a brilliant example of this where two researchers decided to bring together people who were clearly different and got them to spend time talking to each other. And what they found is people got a boost of something called cortisol. 
Now, cortisol is this hormone that you have when you wake up or if you're going for a run. It's super useful if you need a burst of energy. You shouldn't get it from just talking to someone. <laughs> now, the trouble with cortisol <laughs> is it's basically a stress hormone. It gets you moving. But if you have it constantly, if you have it frequently, it actually is really bad for you. So it kicks up. It, it basically is a sort of gets you ready to move. And so what happens is your sugar levels start to spike. You stop worrying about other things like digestion, for example. So you start getting ulcers. You start worrying about things like fighting off illness. So you tend to get ill. If you have constantly high levels of cortisol, you are not going to be a healthy person. And actually, you're going to be quite an anxious person. People who live in societies which are quite full of difference but they don't have friends who are different, become anxious. And actually, they're more likely to become ill. So first of all, it's really not good for your heart. It's also not good for your head. I mean, what does it do to a democracy if when you vote, <laughs> the only people you really are caring about and thinking about are people just like you? I mean, that's that's not a great situation. So if, if for example, you're going to vote and you don't know anyone who's Jewish, and there's a Jewish population in your society, or you don't know anyone who's Christian, you don't know anyone who's an atheist, you don't know anyone who's a Muslim, you don't know anyone who's black, etc. It's very easy for someone to come along and tell you a load of lies about those people. And it's quite hard to believe those lies if you're thinking, well, that's not true. Mohammed's not like that. And so it really <laughs> messes up our democracy. And that can be all sorts of differences. It could be business owners. We think, you know, tax rates should be 93%, 98% because, you know, business owners don't need it. If we don't understand each other, we don't know each other, it's very easy to become a bit extreme. Terrible for our heads, terrible for democracy. And the last one, our hands. Hands are things we work with. We type with them. We shake hands on deals. We lift and move things. When we're thinking about jobs, when we're thinking about opportunities, it's not just what you know, it's who you know. And actually, in a society that's full of them and us, often our poorest children, our most disadvantaged children, don't get the networks. They don't get the connections they need to get on. That's bad for all of us because it means the economy doesn't grow and it means we all end up poorer. So a divided society is, is just downright dangerous. It's not good for us. That's really fascinating because we might be thinking selfishly, well, why I should be getting out of my social bubble? It's easy to be supported by the people like me. But you're giving really specific motivators almost to get out of our social bubble. So we are less anxious. We are exposed to different opportunities. I think there's so much interesting studies around, for instance, people who are luckier that is luckier when it comes to maybe their success are people who go out more for more diverse networks and more diverse opportunities. So absolutely that idea of exposing ourselves, our, you called it hearts, head and hands to all of this diversity, so important. Societies, humanities, we have this amazing power of kindness, compassion at the huge level as well, where we can come together. So what happens when we come apart and when we come together? We have this slight bias towards people uh, that remind us of ourselves. There's a really good example of two schools in Oldham in the north of England, where they, very similar schools, had about 700 pupils each. One was almost entirely white British pupils and one was almost entirely entirely Asian British pupils and they decided to close both schools and merge them together and create a new school and a group of social researchers decided to see if the kids made friends and and they tracked them by seeing who they sit next to in their lunch hall now 
the first thing they found is that the white British kids and the Asian British kids didn't really start spending that much time together. That's not that surprising. They've been educated in completely different schools for years. Here's the thing that's really interesting. They found that kids with ginger hair, and I've got ginger hair, kids with ginger hair were more likely to sit next to other kids with ginger hair. And kids with glasses, I've got glasses, were more likely to sit next to kids with glasses. Now, it wasn't that they had some special school for kids with ginger hair and glasses, and therefore they had to sit together. It's, again, this slight bias we have to people who remind us of ourselves. It's really important. This people like me syndrome, it's not a hatred. You know, there are racial hatreds in our societies that we've got to be honest about. But I'm not describing a hatred. I'm describing a nervousness. And so it's like when you go to a party and everyone looks a bit cool. But over in the corner, some, I'm saying this as a bit, person who's a bit geeky, over in the corner, some people wearing, you know, clunky glasses, corduroy tops, and they look a bit nerdy. And I find myself going over to them. It's not that I hate the other people. It's that I think these people won't reject me. And so I think we sort of, we, we, we need to understand that's how it works. The good news is, the good news is we're phenomenally good at actually getting on with people who we think initially are different. We're actually really good at it. We're really good at finding common ground. But something's got to throw us into that relationship to start with. And I I call this the common life. Let me give you a really good example of a common life. There's a tribe in northern Tanzania who are called the Hadza who are just super fascinating. And, And they're super fascinating for a couple of reasons. Firstly, they're hunter-gatherers. So the hunter-gatherers in the 21st century, that's how they live. They're not farmers, they're not factory workers, they're not knowledge workers, they're foragers. They're hunting and gathering. It's really intriguing. That's not the most interesting thing about the Hadza. The most interesting thing about the Hadza is the thing they do once a month. So once a month, when the moon is gone from the sky and everything is black, the Hadza gather together with other Hadza nearby who are about to sort of bed down for the night and they perform something called the Apem. And the Apem is basically a dance. And the way it works is the men go and hide and the first man comes out and he's got a black cape on and he's got black ostrich feathers and he's got a rattle in a hand and he's got bells around one leg and he leads off in a rhythmic dance. And the women join in and children and it lasts for two or three hours. What are they doing? Like, why are they? They've done this for thousands of years. Once a month, they do this. Why are they doing it? And a group of researchers followed the Hadza for a decade. I don't know how they got funded, but they followed them for a decade. <laughs> and what, what, they, what they found was that the Hadza are biased. So they, they are biased when it comes to lending tools to other Hadza. They're biased when it comes to who to sleep near to. They're biased when it comes to who to gossip and trust with, with stories. They're biased in two ways. Firstly, they're biased towards their little smaller family group, people like me. Secondly, they're biased even more so to who? The people they dance the apem with. So they are more likely to share tools, to gossip, to hang out with, yes, their family, but secondly, the people they do this activity together, the people that they doing something intense together with. And actually, you can see the same thing, the same common life institution that throws people together throughout human history. Whether when we were foragers and we would do these sort of rituals or when we were farmers, when it was often organised religion or feast days or rites of passage or when we were factory workers, in which case it was more like joining clubs or societies or sending our children to the local school or going to the local workplace. What's changed is that we've got out of the habit of joining clubs and societies, many of us. And actually, when it comes to sending our children to school, increasingly, we choose where we send our children. And of course, we choose where to work. We wouldn't just go to the local factory, most of us. 
And so therefore, when we choose, people like me syndrome kicks in. If I would like to step out of my so social bubble and I would like to contribute to less fractured society, what would you advise me to do? Two things here. So first of all, don't feel guilty. Like, don't feel that you're at fault if you find that when you look at your friends, that you find that you oh, we are a bit similar. We all vote the same kind of same education level. Or don't feel guilty. Like the the key one of the key messages of the book is that this is a natural phenomenon that happens naturally. So we we shouldn't be blaming ourselves. The, the second is take a small step. So in in the book I nay, I list thirty two things that anyone could do right now, and you don't have to do all thirty two. So so here's three little things that anyone could do. The first is change who you follow on social media. Add a couple of extra people. By that I mean look at your latest sort of feed, especially if you're on Twitter. And if all the last 10 people to tweet are people you basically agree with on pretty much everything, then add a couple of people you disagree with or add some people from a different walk of life that do completely different jobs to the work you do. So that's one. Two, join something. You know, one of the great institutions for connecting people in history has been clubs and associations. Why? Because they throw us into activity together. And in that, we naturally start to bond with people we didn't pick. And so join a club, join a society, go four times. If you hate it, stop going, pat yourself on the back, well done. But you might love it, in which case, keep going. The third one is invite your neighbours round once a year. So once a year, invite a few people, but don't just pick the ones you like. Pick people who either live near you, so pick, you know, the six nearest, or roll a dice if you want some sort of peril. Roll a dice and knock on that door. And if you're thinking, I couldn't invite all my neighbours, don't invite all your (laughs) neighbours. If you're thinking, oh, I couldn't cook everyone a meal, don't cook a meal. (laughs) Make a cup of tea. Get a a bottle of of Coke and pour them a drink. Just keep it simple. But just once a year, invite your neighbours around. So three things any of us could do right now. Love it. Love it. Because it's very practical, as you say, and very simple. And that's exactly what we are after. We want to be building that united diversity. We want to be getting out of our social bubble with those small steps and definitely with the social media. I know myself, when I start following people who are different to me, it's just really open up really your learning and perspective. You don't even realize what exists out there till you actually get out of that social media bubble. And it, which is really sad also, because we know that on social media, the algorithms really works opposite, right? They show you the kind of the thing over and over again, which is similar to what you've seen previously. So I think we need to be very active on social media of no I want to expand my worldview John this is after all a podcast about happiness so I have a question to you what makes you happy yeah I was thinking you might ask me this I think there's probably two maybe three main things that make me happy so one is I like getting stuff done there's part of me that enjoys you know you get a to-do list out you write down the things you've already done and you cross them off and there's something really satisfying about a job well done I think the, the second thing is I take such joy in seeing people understand, like really listen to each other and care for each other, especially when you might think, God, they're not totally coming from the same place. 
there's something I mean to give the opposite what gives me great sort of frustration is seeing people get crosser and crosser with each other when actually they both got something incredibly important they're trying to say and they just can't find a way to communicate it and it normally begins with I feel I feel hurt because da 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 but when people actually connect and they actually see, look, we don't agree. You vote for them and I vote for these guys. You like this and I like that. But you know what? As Shakespeare once wrote, don't we both bleed? You know, Don't we all bleed? Don't we all have fears and agonies and worries? Like seeing people really connect and pull together does give me an immense sense of just satisfaction about the world. And I think the third one is my family. This is why you don't want to go too far with what I'm saying. There's nothing wrong with spending some time with people who you're really close to and really similar to. And my family bring me an immense amount of joy and often deep frustration. But, you know, it's, maybe it's the combination come together. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think we're all experiencing that. I really love the point of that compassion, right? The human compassion is based on the idea that we are all humans. We all want to be just happy and we all want to escape suffering. And I think if we just remember that, then all the other stuff like political views, religious views, our background, that all of that melts away because we are humans after all. I think often we, we can either find the commonality in exactly that sort of beautiful truth. And sometimes we can also find the commonality in something completely banal. I, I was struck watching my mum's in her 80s and my youngest daughter is six. And I saw, watched them connecting the other day playing cards. They're not focusing on any deep truth but they like playing cards. This is what we learn. This is what I try and argue constantly in the book, that actually what brings us together is doing things together, finding something we love and doing it with other people who we might not agree with, but we find, ah, oh, you, you like football too, so do I. You support that team, so do I. You know, these little commonalities that can actually cross, cross bridges. Yes, and then we can experience that collective joy, which is so powerful as an emotion when we are in groups. That idea of celebrating, creating together and sharing that moment and space in time. Final question from me, John. Your book, Fractured, why have you decided to write it? What was motivation to do so? My dad was a vicar, so I grew up surrounded by sort of people of faith. And and some of the people I knew were very conservative in their faith and some were very liberal. And what struck me, I, I had friends who were both growing up as a kid and I liked them both immensely. But I was struck that sometimes when I talk to the people who are very liberal in their faith, they talk about the people who are very conservative as though they were up to something, incredibly organised and up to something. And I talk to the people who are very conservative in their faith <laughs> and they'd, they'd say, well, the thing about the people who are very liberal that you know is that they're, they're all up to something and they're very well organised. And I was struck knowing them that they were neither up to something nor well-organised. <laughs> they were disorganised and up to nothing. But no one knew and no one realised. And, and I became sort of increasingly passionate about the value of just seeing each other's point of view. And more than that, getting to know each, how much how much you actually had in common. And I think that came from sort of those experiences. And then I found my life constantly, I would find myself in the gap between people from one side or the other which means you obviously cop all the criticism from everyone. But there's a great privilege being in the gap. You, you notice how much people often have in common that they don't notice. And so the book was a sort of a heartfelt cry to say, it doesn't have to be like this. We actually can find so much commonality, not in, not in speeches, not in preach, being preached at, 
but through doing things together. Brilliant. Thank you so much, John. That's absolutely amazing. And thank you for all the practical tips that listeners can pick up and hopefully, you know, really expand their social bubble and really get united in that diversity. Thank you so much again for coming to End Happiness. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much, John, for sharing your advice. I absolutely love the idea of inviting our neighbors for a cup of tea, but one specifically, the idea that I think it's so simple to implement is broadening our views on social media. So we know that the current algorithms show us what we're going to like, So we really need to make an effort to change what we see. And this means liking content and engaging with people outside of our current belonging bubble who have completely different views to us. Over time, our feeds will start suggesting to us content that is more varied and diversified. And actually, research is saying that the impact of social media on our well-being and happiness is actually very much moderated by the way we use social media. Researchers distinguished two types of users, active social media users, that is, we actively interacting with people, we're seeking out entertainment, we're sharing creative, encouraging content, and passive social media users, that is, we're just passively scrolling through feeds and consuming any content that we see. Passive social media use is actually associated with increased anxiety and depression, but the active social media use is associated with reduction of the symptoms. So actually choosing what you see and how you actively engage on social media is something that can really boost your happiness. But most importantly, it's a simple way to stepping out of your belonging bubble. I hope you enjoyed this episode on society and happiness. See you at the next episode when I'll be discussing how we can be strengthening our social connections by building and rebuilding trust. I dare you to be happy.